Welcome to the Breaking to Startups podcast, where our goal is to help people from non-traditional backgrounds to break into and navigate their way around tech. Today's episode is really special. There are a lot of dreamers out there, especially in Silicon Valley, but it's rare to find someone who has huge dreams, someone who is a dreamer and a doer. So today we're excited to share with you Adam Braun's story, because he's exactly that. Adam was a co-founder of Mission U, where he's building a school for the 21st century. However, Mission U is not like any other school that you may have heard of. Mission U realizes that today there's a big problem. Millions of people are either themselves affected by college debt or know someone in their family who is affected by it. College loans are also the only kind of debt that you cannot default on. So to fix that, Adam and his team want to give you a world-class education debt-free. Let me repeat this. World-class education debt-free. When he first started, Adam went on a listening tour. He spoke to over 200 people, including students, educators, and CEOs of publicly traded companies to figure out how to solve this problem. We cover more of it on this episode, but an interesting point that Adam made during our chat is that when you ask a student why they wanted to go to a college, almost everyone said that they wanted to get a good job. However, when you ask the educators, like your teachers and your professors, what their goals were, the answer surprised him and it will surprise you. Ironically, their goal was to teach a student about a given topic rather than to help the student get a job. Because of this misalignment of interest, Mission U partnered with companies like Spotify, Uber, Lyft, Warby Parker, and many others to understand which base skills a student must have in order for these companies to hire them. Once they had that, Adam and his team went back to the drawing board and designed a program where they will teach you the needed skills for a year, completely free, and you'll pay them back a percentage of your salary once you get a job and you're making over $50,000. Their program is a year long, it's full time, and because they realize that not everyone can afford to not work for a year, their program is meant to accommodate a 20 hour a week part-time job as well. The deadline to apply for the January cohort is actually November 9th. So if you're listening right now, and it sounds interesting, definitely check it out and apply. The next cohort starting dates are going to be for May and September. So if you miss the November 9th deadline, you can apply to those. Also, if you decide to apply, use the referral link in the show notes on Adam's episode on our site to get $250 off, off of the amount that you'll be paying back once you get a job. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode and let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Arthur Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Arthur, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, today's um, it's Friday morning. It's almost eight a.m. and it's the weekend of Halloween, so we're gonna be celebrating later. 
this episode is very special to us because there are a lot of familiar faces in, in this room. And Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Absolutely. We're here with Adam Braun on the West Coast, who's the co-founder of Mission U that's focused on reinventing the college experience and specifically focused on the student debt problem and making sure that is a non-issue in the future. For those of you that don't know, Adam Braun was also the founder of, or is the founder of Pencils of Promise that has founded over 400 schools, reached 70,000 people. And he actually wrote a book about it called The Promise of a Pencil. That's a bestseller. He's from the East Coast. Most importantly, he's a family man, a father of twins. I mean, we're really excited to have him here. And as Arthur mentioned, we have a few of people that we used to work with here that you might have heard on a previous episode, specifically Patrick Kimberly Hunt from episode 41. So Kim, you want to tell us why you, you joined Mission U? Yeah, it's kind of a funny how things really come full circle. I was at Square the last time I had recorded and really loved business development, but really was very much hoping to help people break into startups. And now I'm at Mission U, which does exactly that. It's very much my vision and something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And what's so interesting is the reach that breaking into startups has on my first day here. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to our intern, Patrick. I was standing at my desk and suddenly this guy comes over and he goes, oh, it's you. I knew it was you. I heard you on the podcast. And I said, did that help you? And he's like, yeah, that's the reason why I applied. So I just definitely have to give a shout out. Patrick's here in the room as well. Awesome. Awesome. So shout out to Patrick and Kim for, for being part of the team. And again, Adam, thank you for being here with us and, and welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. And I really have huge admiration for what you guys do. Yeah, man. So from what I understand, when, when you launched, you had over 5,000 applications to this program, a lot of hype, a lot of things that are real that's going on. It's not just hype. It's not a lot of talk. You have three different tiers and it's a year-long program. So give us an overview of what Mission U is about, kind of like the profile of the people that are applying. Sure. So, you know, we really designed Mission U as a, a college alternative that is debt-free and built for the 21st century. So it's a one-year program. When you get into Mission U, we remove the traditional debt model from the equation entirely, and we invest in you. And so what that means is there's no upfront tuition. Across the course of that year, we provide you with really a world-class education as well as opportunity for real-world work experience. And instead of traditional upfront tuition, what you commit to as a student is an income share agreement, which is really only triggered if you're successful. And so the way that works is you commit to 15% of income for 36 months after you leave the program, but only if you're making $50,000 or more. And there's a time bound and there's an upper limit to it. So you know, essentially, we designed it from day one to really only be successful if our students were successful. And you know, in a yeah. second, I can explain to you the whole backstory behind it. But yeah. that's the high level overview. So it, it sounds like what you're doing is you're flipping the traditional education model on its head where if you go to a four-year university, the end goal is for you to get a diploma and not necessarily a job, but what you guys are basing your success based on your student success, and only then the student pays you back, which is super cool. Like Ruben mentioned, what is the profile of the students who attend Mission U? Sure. So you know, we think of our students not necessarily based on the demographics, but more so on the psychographics. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, you know, really, what is their motivation? That's what we care about. What is the motivating factor that they think about when considering their educational experience? And what you find is 91% of all entering freshmen in college today say they're going to college to get a better job. It's the number one answer given when entering freshmen are asked, why are they going to college? 
When you ask administrators and professors on college campuses, what is your core responsibility? They don't share that same belief. It's, it's what I've seen is around 14% or so actually think it's their primary or one of their primary yeah. responsibilities. So there's this huge disconnect between the consumer, which is the student, you know, essentially buying an education or an educational opportunity and the service provider in the institution. And what we really wanted to do was provide a very clear opportunity for that type of student who's ambitious, who's motivated, who's results-driven, who's trying to you know, think of themselves almost as a career starter is kind of the phrase that we've really honed in on. So not somebody necessarily who's later stage in their career and, and looking to retool a little bit, but you know, maybe somebody who is either traditionally considered themselves a student and hasn't launched into a true you know, high-growth career, or somebody oftentimes who, let's say, is on a job that's more on an hourly wage basis and wants to get into full-time salaried, high-growth job opportunities. And for those individuals, you know, Mission U is really designed to help them thrive. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely something that's much needed, especially locally. I mean, we're here in the Tenderloin where, you know, right in South America, you have the biggest tech companies, but you have so many people here that don't have the same opportunities that would be able to take advantage of a program like this. And so, you know, let's say I applied for your Mission U and I wanted to be in your program. What do those tiers look like for me? Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, one, just to give the demographic profile, I mean, we have students that range from 18 to 39 in yeah. the program. You know, we have a handful of students that are fresh out of high school and they're doing exceptionally well. We have, you know, students that are in their mid-20s or their 30s and just haven't built the, the career that they want. Mm-hmm. And in particular, what we see is most of our students do not have a bachelor's degree yet. Yeah. You know, about 20 to 25% do. And even with that bachelor's degree, they don't have the career that they aspire towards. In particular, they don't possess the skills necessary to thrive. And then additionally, almost every single one of our students outside of those that are coming fresh out of high school have gone to college. Mm-hmm. And some of them have transferred from elite schools. You know, we have students from GW, Pepperdine, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them went to local community colleges or large public schools. Mm-hmm. But for almost every single one of them, they've entered into the traditional educational path. Mm-hmm. And for one of two reasons, and usually it's both, They've said, I don't think this is right for me. One of those reasons is oftentimes, you know, the cost structure, just the amount of debt that students are taking on is insane relative to the long-term value. And then the second reason that we see almost unequivocally with every student is they just don't find that the education that they're gaining in a traditional setting is relevant to the real world. Yeah. You know, even in my undergrad education, I went to a great school, the value that was highest for me were in independent studies. When I had a professor and I did three of them, I mean, literally mm-hmm. three full semester long independent studies, just because, you know, I had this entrepreneurial approach and I, I felt like the greatest value for me was in doing something, writing a business plan that I could actually bring to life. Yeah. And so the way the year is structured is that it's broken out into three trimesters. Mm-hmm. The first trimester we call foundation. Mm-hmm. And what you find is the most popular undergraduate major in the United States is business, but very few people that get a business undergraduate education have any relevant skills. <laughs> To enter a business. I mean, literally almost none at all. And so, you know, I started my career at Bain and Company, arguably the top consulting firm really in the world. And the reason that I wanted to work there was because of their training program. You come in to Bain as like kind of raw clay. And in a very short period of time, they turn you into a monster. You're, yeah. you're a beast by the time you leave Bain. Yeah. And at this stage in my life and career, I will hire almost any person out of Bain. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily because I think Bain screens people better than any other top company. They're bringing in a similar level of talent, but it's actually the training experience that you go through that gets you to this place. And I know if somebody went to that training experience, they're SEAL Team 6. I can drop them in on yep. any, any business challenge and they can kill it. And so as a result of that, 
what you find is we have more ex-Bane people here at Mission U than any other former employer. Yeah. And I'm actually the only one that's not an instructor in some that's capacity. Right. All of them teach. And I teach certain courses in particular, you know, lectures or, or ideas that I know really well. Yeah. But I'm not a day-to-day instructor. And so that first trimester is a deep dive on that almost Bane style um, yeah, skill set that's going to make you valuable in any business context. Awesome. But we blend it really, really heavily with very robust soft skill training. Yep. And so we have two folks on staff that are ex-Stanford lecturers. One of them uh, was a lecturer in the most popular course in undergrad at Stanford called Designing Your Life. Mm-hmm. There's now a big New York Times bestseller about it. Mm-hmm. And then the other lecturer was someone who taught the most popular course at Stanford Graduate School of Business called Interpersonal Dynamics, but everyone knows it as touchy-feely. Yeah, and yeah. if you meet anybody that went to Stanford GSP, they say touchy-feely was their favorite course and it was the most impactful in their life. Yeah. And so what we find is there's tremendous value in counterbalancing this really robust, hard skill set development, almost like a traditional but better undergrad business foundation with this holistic self-development and soft skill. And then your second trimester is a deep dive in your major. Right now, we offer one major. Over time, we'll add many more. But the first one is data analytics and business intelligence. And then the third trimester is real-world work experience, yeah. where we give you what we call career launch. It's, it's robust training around interview preparation, salary negotiation, et cetera. And then you do about a 10 to 12-week internship or fellowship with a great company or organization. And by the end of that year, you should be an all-star. I mean, yeah. you should be incredibly ready and valuable to almost any company, in particular, those that are looking for analysts, which yeah. are really high-paid roles and cross-industry and cross-functional. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, so... We- I guess being in tech, we know what the data analytics roles entail. But for our listeners, and we've had listeners from 50 different countries, some mm-hmm. of them are right out of high school. Can you dive a little deeper into explaining what the major is? Yeah. And also, why do you think these tech companies need people with these skill sets? So one thing that I'll actually clarify is it's a lot more than just tech companies that need mm-hmm. data analysts or just analytic skill sets in particular. There was a study put out recently by McKinsey that predicted, I can't remember if it was 1.5 or 1.8 million jobs that will go unfilled that require analytic skill sets at either the analyst or manager role by 2018. Mm-hmm. So what you find is almost every company has had an explosion of data internally in the last few years. And it's only going to increase as we go forward. And you know, a lot of people in the call it alternative education space have in recent years, focused on coding. And I think it it was really smart in software engineering because what you saw was colleges weren't pumping out the talent and there was a huge gap in that skill set. And then over the last, call it two, three years, you've seen a robust growth in data science, which is higher level. You have a lot of people that are PhDs that aren't going to go down the 10-year professor track and can be you know reskilled to come in and help lead machine learning and AI, et cetera. But every single company still has this foundational need For people to take the raw data that they are gathering, analyze, synthesize that data, and then ultimately help inform better business making decisions. Yeah. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day is, you know, as the CEO of a company, if somebody could come to me and say, I want to cut up all of your data and help you make better business decisions, my immediate thought process is I can use that in every part of my business, right? It's not limited to one area. So I want to have that ability when it comes to financial business decision making. Mm -hmm. I want to have that ability when it comes to marketing. Right? I want to have that ability when it comes to sales, when it comes to ops, when it comes to long-term strategy. And so you know, before we even decide a major, I remember I was talking to a guy that I've been close to for a number of years who's just incredible named Gary Briggs, who was the CMO at eBay, essentially similar role at Google. And now he's the, the CMO of Facebook. 
And I remember him saying to me, Adam, we can't hire data analysts fast enough. And he was talking about the marketing function within mm-hmm. Facebook, let alone you know, their data science and all these yeah. other pieces. So you know, for anyone out there that's not familiar with this data analyst skill set, it is incredibly valuable. I mean, you know, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, starting salaries or average salaries are around $90,000 a year. Mm-hmm. They can certainly go up from there. You know, entry level might be you know, a little bit lower, called 60 to 70 or 80. But they're needed at almost every single company. And you can work in various different departments. So I find there's you know, people that say, look, I'm, I'm interested in marketing. How do I get into marketing? Well, the best way to get into marketing is to understand the analytics behind yeah. the marketing function. Yeah. Um, and so what we've seen is you know, kind of building out a better version of a modern business degree yeah. um, for yeah. a traditional student can be incredibly valuable and can help them build the path that they ultimately yeah. want to pursue. And just to give an example, like the startup that I work for, we have a mobile app and Every single week, we look at numbers of downloads, we look at number of active users. And nowadays, it's not just the tech companies who look at these metrics. If you're a bank, if you're a healthcare company, you always want to keep track of how well the business is growing. Yeah. And it's not just the financials, because a lot of the times people think that you need to be in finance to understand the financials, but there's other areas around operations and around growth, around marketing that people need data, that they have the data on, they just need people to analyze it. And it sounds like you guys are coming in and providing, teaching people the skills to be able to do that. Do you think it's a skill that anyone can learn? Or do you have to be good at math or good at scientists in order to do well? So, so I think it's different from coding or software engineering, because you can start from a much broader foundation, mm-hmm. I would say. And what I mean by that is you don't have to have advanced mathematic abilities. You don't have to have the, I would say, type of intellectual connective tissue from one idea that's wildly disparate from another that oftentimes is required for you know, higher level data science. I think most people can build up to that. But what you need is basically a foundational math ability. You, know, mm-hmm. you, you got to be able to do basic arithmetic to get into a place like Mission U mm-hmm. because we can't do remediation on math in one year and get you to the place that we want to get you to. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be some math whiz. Yeah. So, you know, in, in our admissions process, which is probably important to explain to any uh, yeah. listener out there, one thing that's really important is we remove SAT, we remove ACT, we remove any type of standardized tests. Because in this country, if you look at the data, SATs in particular are perfectly correlated to your family's wealth. What the SAT really is, is a good indicator of is how wealthy your family is. Because it's a test that anybody can really study and prepare for and do much better if you have the resources to do that very clear studying, preparation, tutoring, et cetera. So we take that out of the equation entirely. What about GPA? Uh, we don't look at GPA either. I think GPA is a decent indicator, but it doesn't tell your whole story. You know, yeah. It doesn't say that in your GPA that one of your parents got really sick and you became the primary caretaker of your siblings. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say that you have this incredible creative and entrepreneurial ability and that you know, the teachers around you didn't support that. Uh, it doesn't say that you went to maybe a not so great school and yeah. you didn't have the resources that others did. So we ask for that information. We ask, you know, at one part in the admissions process, we say, this is optional. No one in the admissions department will see any of this information in making an admissions decision. And that's where we ask for things like SAT, GPA, you know, your background, a bunch of demographic data, yeah. but we don't take it into consideration at all. And after you go through that first step, just kind of providing your background, there's three more steps. One of them is a quantitative challenge because for data analytics as our current major, you have to show at least a foundational set of math abilities. You don't have to crush this challenge. I mean, you have to do better than a minimum threshold that frankly is not very high, but we just need to see that you have proficiency and it's open book. You can use Google, any other resources. And in fact, 
one of the things we look for is what is your resilience? What's your grit? What's your willingness to work through challenging problems? Because even if you're not strong at math, if you use Google and you put in the time, you can figure this out. And that's what we ultimately want to see because that's the people that thrive professionally. The second component after that is a group challenge, which is actually where we gain the most important information about a candidate. You come into essentially a virtual classroom and it's you and several other candidates and you're given a prompt, essentially an idea without a clear solution. And then we leave the room and you spend about 35 minutes together designing a presentation, doing research. And then for the last five to 10 minutes, our admissions officer comes back in and you present your findings to them. Nice. And it's all about how do you collaborate with others? Because that is one of the most essential skills to really thrive mm-hmm. in the workforce today. You know, you assess your performance, your fellow candidates, and then three different people go back, watch the footage. And, and then from there, you move into the final round interview. Nice. Um, so you know, what we see is there are some people that come in really strong on math. There's others that, that really don't. And you know, what we find is in that first trimester, some really value the soft skills. Because yeah. some people that have strong technical backgrounds really need the soft skill training. Yeah. And some people that come in with, I mean, you know, Eliana, the first student that we ever admitted, was a yoga teacher in Berkeley. Oh, wow. Who you know, had soft skills to the roof, right? Yeah. I mean, personable, gets along well with others, really incredibly engaging, professional communication. But she didn't have the technical side, the hard skill side. And she's you know, really thriving. And what we're seeing, especially in a small group cohort, is how supportive they are of one another. And it's so clear. I mean, you know, another one of our students, Daniel, said to me recently that because of the way we've designed the curriculum, he feels closer to students, some of the students in the cohort than he does to some of his best friends that he's known his whole life. And this was wow. one month into the program. Yeah. I think a lot of times like when, you know, you mentioned the consulting thing and like the investment banking thing or something like that, people there's definitely positive and negatives to those things, but like those small cohorts working intensely together yeah. does bring them together. Like Archer and I met in one of those bullpens working together mm. and now we're like best friends, like yeah. teamwork. Something that's also very interesting about how you came up with this whole curriculum and this whole process is this listening tour. Yeah. We read about it. I think you had an article on First Round or something yep, like the that. the First Round Review. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about how you went yeah. on this listening tour. Yeah. So maybe I'll even take a step back and just kind of quickly explain the personal background, which is I'm born in New York. I grew up in the suburbs outside of New York because my parents were looking for the best public education system around. Mm-hmm. And so we had a family that really valued how education could be transformative from one generation to another. Both my, my father's parents were Holocaust survivors, literally lost every and the vast majority of their families. And you know, my mother's father passed away when she was young. She was raised by a single mom after that. And so neither one of my parents came from really anything and built their lives that they wanted to become a dentist and an orthodontist because of education. So I grew up as a believer that education can transform you know, opportunity from one generation to the next. And I thought I'd try and work in finance because that's what I was interested in early on. And I started traveling to the developing world in my early 20s as a backpacker. And worked at Bain. And while I was there, I pitched them on letting me leave temporarily, which eventually became permanently (laughs) to found Pencils of Promise. They let me go on a nine-month sabbatical. I came back for four months. We had built our first school. And I said, I want to keep working on this. I want to build a second school. You know, you fast forward seven, eight years and and Pencils of Promise, as you mentioned, has built now over 400 schools. We have 75,000 students in our programs every day. But a lot of the growth of the organization was happening on college campuses. And after I wrote my book, The Promise of a Pencil, gets used by a lot of colleges as the common read for entering freshmen. So, you know, these schools would say, we'd love to have you come and speak. It was super moving for me. I'd go and I'd get on this college campus and I'd speak to these students about how they should support children in rural poverty in the developing world. 
And after every speech I gave, there, no matter what school it was, if it was an elite Ivy League school, if it was a small community college in Arizona, you know, if it was a large public state school, a non-elite private school, there was always a subset of students that came up to me afterwards and say, look, this is really great. I would love to participate in something like that, but I have so much student debt, I can't even consider it. It's not even on the radar for me. Yeah. And I don't have the skills necessary to build the life I want. Can you do something about the broken education system here? Yeah. And I kept on hearing, I mean, campus after campus after campus. And then when I met my wife, everything really changed because suddenly now I was in love with somebody who was directly affected by this. You know, she came to this country and she was nine from South Africa. Family didn't have much and really believed that education was the great enabler. Yeah. And she had to leave school after three years because she had so much debt. Yeah. And by the time we met, she had over $100,000 of student debt. I learned that debt from student loans is the only debt in the country that can't be discharged through bankruptcy. Yeah. And that was the moment for me that I was like, this system is so broken. And as somebody who's built you know, a pretty large organization, a lot of friends of mine have built super high growth companies, college is not necessarily the answer if you want to build a great life and career for a lot of people. Yeah. We have 4,400 registers in the United, uh, colleges in the United States. Yeah. And I don't think the return on investment is there for the majority of them. It's, it's yeah. there for some. But you know, that really moved me to see what happened to my wife. And so as a result of that, you know, I set out and was fortunate to meet my co-founder, Mike Adams, out here in the Bay Area. Just you know, an incredible, incredible individual with another amazing story. And he's our chief product officer. He leads all curriculum and technology. And we set out really from day one to build something that could help an individual springboard into the life and career that they wanted. And what kind of people did you talk to on this tour? So you know, I remember starting exclusively with other entrepreneurs. I didn't want to meet with investors. You know, From day one, it was going to be a B Corp. We needed to be able to serve a social mission. It's a benefit corporation, right? Yep. Public okay. benefit corporation. That's how we registered, which means that we're able to raise traditional investor capital to go after a big problem, but we can also serve our social mission. Yep. Even in lieu of the financial benefit of the it company. It's started by B-Labs, right? So B-Labs is almost like the certifying body. Yeah. So I remember thinking, you know, one, I spent you know, almost a decade in education at the time, but primarily focused in rural you know, primary education in the developing world. And it makes me honestly know enough to be dangerous, yeah. but know little enough to come up with ideas that somebody that's deeply entrenched might not. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, something as much as I, I believe in my abilities as an entrepreneur and as a leader of a company or an organization, there's so much to be learned about the path that others have walked before me. Yeah. So I created a list that I called the Dirty Dozen. Uh-huh. And it eventually grew <laughs> to 20, but there were 12 originals. And they were first and foremost friends uh-huh. that I knew the caliber of person they were. Yep. And they had also built incredibly successful companies and organizations that ultimately served yeah. others in a really positive way. Awesome. And so I went out and I sat with them and I had my list of questions and I, I walked them through each of these questions. And, you know, should we be fully online or fully offline or a blend of the two? Should we be six months, three months, one year, two year, five years? What, you know, all these big questions. And over time, it really helped me hone in yeah. uh, on a model. And, and eventually, uh, a lot of those individuals that I spoke to, at the end of those conversations, they'd say, hey, if you actually go out and pursue this, I want to hire your grads because we need this. Yeah, and it formed the early basis of what are what are now our partnerships. And yeah. so, you know, Mission U has a series of employer partners. These yeah. are companies like Spotify, Uber, Lyft, Warby Parker, Casper, yeah. Harry's, etc. Huge. We'll pretty soon be announcing a whole nother mm-hmm. slate of employer partners that are even bigger companies. Yeah, 
because it's just because there's been so much interest in the program and yeah. they do three things. They really deeply advise us on curriculum. Yeah. So we're constantly calibrating our curriculum in a dynamic way against the needs of hiring managers and C-level leaders at companies. The second is we co-create content and experiences. So you know, even coming from a great undergraduate education, I never once visited an actual company, yeah. let alone heard from somebody who worked at a company. Yeah. And our students frequently are visiting companies. Spotify hosted the entire first day of orientation. They were at Thumbtack, Omni, a whole bunch of others recently. Yeah. And we have a bunch more coming up for them. And then they have guest speakers. Really yeah. mm-hmm. frequently they learn from case studies rather than theoretical ideas. Yeah. And then the final part is these companies get early access to this pipeline of incredibly diverse talent that yeah. they're looking for. Yeah. And so they have the first access to hire yeah. Yeah. And I love that kind of you saw your shortcomings or you kind of you were aware enough to realize what you knew and what you didn't know. And you had the humility to kind of go on this tour and reach out to folks who were kind of more experienced than you, but at the same time, kind of you just ask them for a coffee or like ask them to meet. And through that, you were able to crystallize your idea. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs out there, sometimes you jump to certain conclusions without validating and asking for a third perspective, like an outside perspective. So kind of what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs Mm. who are maybe considering starting ideas or want to make a change? Like, can you just describe that process? Like, would you have done it again? Yeah. So, I mean... You know, if anyone just Googles my name, Adam Braun, and first round review, you'll mm-hmm. see an incredibly detailed article mm-hmm. that they wrote. They spent a lot of time interviewing me and yeah. kind of pulling apart my process. And yeah. I mean, it's probably the longest article I've ever seen. <laughs> I've written about something that I was working on or that I've used, which is this concept of a listening tour. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge advocate of it. You know, I think you do it selectively when it's one of the most critical decisions mm-hmm. or the most critical decisions that you'll make in that given year and you don't have clarity on what the answer should be. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the so in my book, there's 30 chapters, and every chapter is titled with a short mantra. Mm-hmm. Those mantras have really been the guideposts for me in making critical decisions, and and I'll write them on walls and in my journal or whatever else it is. And there's one each chapter kind of illustrates it through a story. And there's one chapter called "Vulnerability is Vital," and it's really about this idea that I think the best entrepreneurs out there acknowledge that part of leadership is showing your weakness. You know, if you're constantly the person who says, I only have right answers and I don't need anybody else's help, you're going to be wrong very often. You know, you have to trust your gut. You have to trust your instincts at the end of the day. But it's important to gather information, gather data, get, you know, the best advice that you can from people that have walked that path before you. Because, you know, one of the things I remember in the early days of Pence the Promise, I thought like I was completely going to reinvent every single part of, you know, Mm -hmm. global education and we were going to educate every kid (laughs) on the planet. Like that's how much fire I had in my belly about what. We were building. And I think maybe by year two or three, I realized, you know, something, there's a template here. And a lot of people have built a lot of companies and a lot of different industries. And there's a similar template to that experience. And I should seek out those people and try and learn as much as I can from them. And uh, I believe that's where you met your co-founder, Mike Adams, as well, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, perfect example. So, you know, I'd moved to the Bay Area, started 2016. I was out there talking to people about this idea to build a college alternative for the 21st century. And I remember feeling so hypocritical that my 10-year reunion from college was coming up. And I'm out there you know, believing that I'm going to try and reinvent the modern college experience. And I haven't been a student in a decade. And when I was a student, I never took a single online course because it wasn't offered back then. So I remember thinking, I need to go back into the seat of the student. You know, I-, I need to immerse myself into the role of the learner, not necessarily the entrepreneur, or the instructor, et cetera. And there was a program that a guy that I've known for years named Seth Godin had developed called Alt-MBA. Oh, yeah. And Seth had offered scholarships to everyone at Pencils of Promise. And I passed it on to the team. And kind of on a whim one night, I emailed Seth at like one in the morning. I said, Seth, I know you offered scholarships to the team. What if I took it? And what if I paid for it? Because then I'll really value it. I'll have some skin in the game. 
And you know, I want to learn how you're developing a four-week program that's purely online using Zoom in you know, inter-student communications happening over Slack, which I hadn't used yet. And it's 14 projects shipped over WordPress. And yeah, in particular, he was focused on soft skills. So I said, this is a great opportunity for me to spend four weeks as a student. You know, I enroll. And in the first week, there's a meet and greet online. And I hear this guy and there's people from all over the world. And this one guy just moved to the Bay Area says, yeah, my name is Mike Adams. I'm a software engineer from the Bay Area. Previously co-founded a company called Degreed. Then I helped run outcomes or ran outcomes at Hack Reactor. And I'm not really interested in getting any type of alternative MBA. I'm just looking at new models of higher ed. Wow. <laughs> and I, I shot him a note and I said, we should get together for That's coffee. That's awesome. Really cool. And, and things really ran from there. And w- I think what's cool too is that uh, Patrick, who's actually here in the room, we were speaking to him about what he does at Mission U. And he was just saying how much attention you guys pay to keeping track of data of how your students are learning yeah. and always modifying that. And I think it's actually one of the biggest differences between you and a traditional university mm-hmm. is where with traditional universities, they update their curriculum maybe like once in five years, once in 10 years. Yeah. You're able to see not only like how your students are learning, but if something is not working out or you're realizing that, hey, I thought we should teach them this way, but they're actually not going to that resource or they're not responding well to the content, then just like a tech startup that does yeah. A-B tests, you're able to switch that. And on top of it, you get feedback from your hiring managers yeah. Yeah. to be able to adapt. So then by the end of it, you're literally able to provide someone with the skills that are actually be valuable in the economy. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the stuff? Like, how do you guys go about coming up with the courses and mm-hmm. kind of the content? Because I can imagine that you don't want to just copy the course that someone might have been teaching at a sure. traditional university. So yeah. what is that process for? How does someone come up with what the student needs to know in order mm-hmm. to be a good data analyst? Yeah. So again, everything really starts with employer conversations for us. That's really the foundation of where we begin. And then, you know, to use kind of Mike's reference that he referred to yesterday, our approach to curricular development is agile rather mm-hmm. than waterfall. And so we're constantly iterating on what the curriculum needs to be to meet the demands of you know, the modern workforce. And you know, our core belief at the end of the day when it comes to credentialing is the most powerful credential that you bring to the marketplace is your most recent job. Mm-hmm. Right? At the end of the day, when I'm considering hiring somebody, I want to know what they did professionally most recently. And I was even thinking about this. I was, I was saying it to a friend. I was like, have you ever called a professor for a reference? Like, if you wanted to hire somebody, did you ever call their college professor <laughs> as a reference check? Because you do reference checks, right? Yep. And, and nobody that I know has ever done that. Yeah. And why is it? It's, it's you'd rather speak to somebody who managed them as an intern or that they even their peer, another intern, as a proxy for how good they're going to be in a professional environment rather than one of their college professors that might have guided them for four years of undergrad. So what we look for from a credentialing standpoint as a culture is previous work experience, references, and now increasingly a public portfolio, right? If you're a developer, people mm-hmm. look at GitHub, et cetera. If you're a designer, I might go on Behance and, and check out your most recent work. If not, I might just look at your personal website or you know, what's there on your LinkedIn page, references mm-hmm. you have there, et cetera. And so what we ultimately want to achieve is getting our students great jobs. And as a result of that, we don't think that you know, having that traditional credential is quite as meaningful. And because of that, we have the freedom to build this really, really dynamic curriculum that can be as iterative as the industry mm-hmm. itself. So, I mean, you know, today's Friday. If I think about who I've been talking to just this week, so it was basically, I'll call them the number three globally at WeWork yep. uh, about what their needs are. The number, I mean, this guy's like about as senior as it gets at, again, I won't name it, but like one of the premier banks in the country. And then several others at like really, really robust, mm-hmm. you know, startups. I was at yeah. two different dinners last night talking to a guy from Airbnb, somebody from a bunch of other startups that people know really, really well. 
And those conversations are constantly being fed back into the curricular development side. And then we bring in people from industry as our instructors. Yeah. So again, we have a bunch of ex-Bain people. We have you know data scientists and former data analysts from companies like not only Bain, but IBM, NASDAQ, et cetera, and then you know, the startup ecosystem. And that leads to this process of gut checking. And then we bring in speakers nonstop yep. to actually speak to our students. And our students ask them the question. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I was with a, a CEO who built a massive company at this dinner last night. He came in and spoke to our students last week. He's now part of Expa. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, Expa. Yeah, yeah. yeah incredible. Quoted there, yeah. yeah. So you know, he's part of Expa. And he was saying, man, your students are so good. And they ask so many hard questions. And I said, yeah, that's because they're motivated. And yeah. they actually want to value the time that you're going to spend with them because you're feeding them the information that's going to help them craft their journey in the year ahead. And it's going to help our curricular team design experiences. Yeah. yeah. And I, I love your focus on these conversations. And we'll talk about some of your mentors. You mentioned one at Chegg and I think mm-hmm. two of you. But I also, we haven't touched on it, but you're also really well known for crowdsourcing. You did a lot of, you did something yeah. pretty incredible with Pencils of Promise. Can you talk about that? And also like if you're thinking about crowdsourcing at all yeah. with Mission U, because yeah. there's a, a community element to that. Oh, definitely. So, you know, I remember in, in late 08 when I started Pencil of Promise and you got to keep in mind the economy in New York in October mm-hmm. 2008 was about as bad as it gets. And everyone yeah. said, this is impossible. There's no way you're going to build up one school in a remote part of the developing world in this financial situation. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, all right, if somebody says it's impossible, then it's worth pursuing. That's a go. <laughs> exactly. So then I said, all right, you know, they said, how are you going to raise money? I said, we're going to use Facebook in particular, and we're going to get together young people to give small contributions in person or online. And everyone was like, oh, that's that Obama thing, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it was 08 and Obama had just been the first person to get people to give $5 donations and yep. for it to add up online. And crowdsourcing literally was not a word. I mean, yep. it, it wasn't a part of our language. It probably mm-hmm. came about in 2010. Yeah. But we were one of the first ones to do crowdsourcing at Pencil of Promise. Our first 10 schools were funded through contributions of primarily $100 or less, like 98% wow. or $100 or less from people in their teens and 20s. And you know, when we thought about how do we build out Mission U, we thought about the admissions experience and we said, we should be crowdsourcing talent. Why would we build a huge centralized admissions team to do outreach when there's probably a lot of people out there you know, listening to this podcast thinking, Either I could be a great fit for it or someone that I know could be a great fit for it. So we essentially created a crowdsourced vehicle for admissions, which means you know, if anyone goes on to our website on desktop right now, what you'll see at the top is it says, uh, refer a student that joins and you'll each get $250. And so every single person is a part in my mind of our yep. admissions process. And if you know, what you're hearing resonates with you or someone that you know, you know, go on, grab a referral link. Um, and if they get into the program and they're successful, we pay you $250 bucks and we give them $250 credit towards their income share agreement. Awesome. Awesome. Beautiful. So like a brand ambassador program, like a street team. kind. Exactly. Of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we'll build that up, I think, much more robustly. In, yeah. In really cool. And so tell us a little bit about your mentors you mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, the first probably two people that I started with were two close friends and mentors. Now one's name is Chip Pawsik. Chip's mm-hmm. the co-founder and CEO of 2U, which mm-hmm. is a now over $2 billion market cap company. They're really the first company to bring master's programs from elite schools online. And they did so, they're perceived to be purely online. I remember calling Chip probably two years ago and saying, you know, this is what I want to go out and build. Here's the ideas. You're the first place to really do online at scale well. What are the keys? And I remember him saying to me, the key is we're not purely online. We still bring students together, but they don't have to come together all the time. You have Mm -hmm. to bring people together periodically so they can build real relationships and soft skills. And then certain parts of the experience are superior when done online. There's no, you know, in their phrase, their big hashtag is no back row. 
because you're in front of your screen. There's no place to hide. Yeah. And Chip just really believed in this idea. And then the other one is a guy named Dan Rosenzweig, mm-hmm. who is the CEO of Chegg. Mm-hmm. And before that was the COO of Yahoo. And I actually remember reading this in an article and I was like, man, Dan, you never told me that. But Mark Zuckerberg met Sheryl Sandberg at Dan's house at his holiday wow. party, <laughs> which I read about in the Atlantic. And I was like, damn, awesome. Dan, <laughs> I didn't know I it was like that. But anyway, he's been a really close friend and mentor for a while. And you know, Chegg is probably the largest company, I don't know, they're valued oh, yeah. over a billion, but they serve the college student, right? You know, holistic, everything from textbooks to tutoring. And he was the person besides Chip that I said, this guy knows college. Yeah, He'll either say, there's a terrible idea, Adam, or you should run at this with everything you have. Yeah. And I remember the first, I mean, we spent probably an hour, hour and a half together and Dan just kept on saying, we, yeah. we should do this and we should do that. As if like, <laughs> he believed in it so much that, that he already could see yeah. it happening. And so, you know, with their guidance and mentorship and, you know, a lot of really other incredible people, we built out the program. And one thing I, you know, I haven't mentioned is, is Mission U is blended learning. So yeah. it's a mix of both online and in person. All students have to live within 50 miles of their cohort's base city. And we did that for flexibility. Not everyone can afford to live yeah. in the downtown part of a city and be at a campus you know, six, five to six days a week. So we have students that live in the outskirts where it's a little bit more affordable for them. Uh, but we bring students together for four-day orientation. And then every other week, we have formal sessions that range from three to eight hours. Yeah. And then a lot of students actually live together. Yeah. You know, more than half of our cohort is relocated from around the country to join Mission. That's Union. very interesting. Yeah. I mean, our, our first cohort, actually 80% have relocated from around the country. Mm-hmm. And given the demand that we've seen, you know, we don't want to be turning away people. Yeah. You know, we don't want to be accepting, you know, less than 1% of applicants. We want to be accepting as many as we can. Yeah. So we're ramping up growth. And now there are start dates in January, May, and September. Yeah. And multiple cohorts will be starting per start date. Eventually, we'll add in new cities, probably late 2018. And so, you know, again, if there's anyone out there that this resonates with, or you know somebody, please send them our way. And, you know, admissions yeah. are always open and rolling. And yeah. w- what is the best way to prepare for the admissions exam? I know with, I did a coding bootcamp, and typically the coding bootcamp says, hey, these are the types of problems you need to know how to solve. Yeah. They actually give it to you, and you can just practice. You mentioned the d- various tests that a student yeah. goes through, but I imagine before someone takes it, are there any online resources that you would recommend they check out in order to prepare themselves? It's a great question. Actually, I haven't even been asked that before. So I appreciate you bringing it up. You know, in in my opinion, if if you understand the three steps are quantitative challenge, group challenge, individual interview, you know, one, I would say for the quantitative challenge, just beef up on your math skills, right? Mm -hmm. And so Khan Khan Academy, Academy, exactly. (laughs) Like basic, you know, math across Khan Academy would be great. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you're really dedicated to succeeding in the group interview, get two friends and come up with a prompt and say, all right, we're going to spend 45 minutes on a Zoom or a Skype or a Hangout. And we're going to design a presentation using Google Docs and Sheets. What kind of scenarios are in these group presentations? Yeah. So, you know, one that we've used previously, I'm guessing we're probably not going to use it going forward. So I'll, yeah. I'll share it now is around, uh, we'll say, you know, self-driving vehicles are coming to the roads in the next 10 years. Will they have a net positive, negative or neutral impact on the American economy over the next 10 years? And why? And then we leave and and we let you figure it out because there's no defined solution. And that's how most of work is. It's working with others to find... It's not a 98 on 100 test, right? It's coming up with the best answer that you believe is going to come to fruition in the future and then creating a persuasive argument with others around that. So that's an example. So you can do a a prompt there. And then for the individual, it's uh, really about you you bringing your whole self, your authentic self. And being, you know, able to tell your story and why Mission U is a great fit for you. Yeah, no, th- yeah. this is awesome. And I love that this whole problem is like deeply personal to you. And you've oh, yeah. not just like 
talked about it and went on listening to it, you're executing on it and it's it's growing very quickly. Yeah, I mean how does he, on that point, one thing I'll share with you is I have one almost one year old twins. Yeah. And I'm building Mission U for them. There it I is. I mean, I was I was literally talking to somebody in our office yesterday. I was saying how I talked to my wife about like, yeah. I hope you're okay with the fact that I don't we haven't set up a five twenty nine college savings plan because yeah. I, <laughs> I don't plan to have my kids you know, saved up a whole bunch of money for a traditional college. I mean, yeah. I want to build a better experience. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the future of education is partially lifelong learnership. We're always going to have to reinvest yep. in our education. And because of that, we're not going to have this three stage arc yeah. where you're just going to be a student until you're 22 and you're just going to be a professional until you're 70. And then you're just going to be a retiree afterwards. Yeah. It's in- incumbent on all of us to craft the journey that is best for the path we want to walk. And I think as part of that, you need to have really directed educational experiences. You should you know, try and get out of your comfort zone in various yeah. capacities and um, build a mission new for my kids. And that's true belief right there. So I was going to ask, like, how does she feel now? Is she involved? Is your family in general involved? You know, my wife, I think if she was involved in the business, it would be so all-consuming in my house that it would drive both <laughs> us crazy. My wife's an interior designer. Mm-hmm. And so she has that craft and, and I think we counterbalance one another. But I, I gut check with her. Yeah. 24 hours a day. I mean, she, you know, I think anyone who's an entrepreneur, if they don't admit it, they're not, they're doing a disservice to their significant other, but you have to acknowledge your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend. They're your true, you know, a silent kind of co-founder in the journey. I think Mike and I both feel that way about our spouses, but you know, all the time I talk to her about how did you make this decision to take on those loans? What were you thinking at that point in time? And she said, well, they wouldn't give me the loans if it wasn't going to turn out really good for my future. I mean, yeah. it was the government, right? Or it was, it was the college telling me to do so. And try to understand that mentality or asking her, does this curriculum make sense to you? You know, this piece that we're developing for the student, she's kind of my foundation. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And um, we're going to go into the lightning round in a second, but I did want to ask you about kind of your personal routines and yeah. uh, what do you do on a daily basis to kind of prepare yourself to like lead a company, also find time for family and all those things? Because as you mentioned, you have a team of mentors, you do all those things and you don't take no for an answer. Like you go out, you do the eliciting tours. So what does your day-to-day look like and what's kind of your inner game when it comes to achieving your goals? Yeah. So one thing that's really critical is I've probably done this for five years but I sleep with my phone on airplane mode in a separate room. Mm-hmm. I've always been a very bad sleeper, partially because I have this mental energy of ideas constantly going. And if I'm near a device, I just pick it up and start you know, exploring that idea. So I sleep with my phone in a different room on airplane mode. When I get up in the morning, the first thing that I make sure I do before I go and get my phone is I pursue human contact over digital contact. So what that means is I make sure I at least put my hand on my wife's back, right? Or her shoulder. Just wow. human contact is critical to start the day. If I'm at my best place, I'll try and think of something that I'm grateful for. I think gratitude can be incredibly empowering. But something that I put in place probably four or five months ago is now I don't even check my phone or any form of email until after I've gotten up, you know, washed my face, brushed my teeth, and then spent time feeding and, and playing with my kids. So that's usually, you call it 45 minutes or so between 6.45 and let's say up to 7.45. And I remember I had to tell myself at one point, no one's like mad at me for not replying to an email by 7.45 in the morning. (laughs) Like I'm not being, you know, I'm not letting anybody down and it's okay from 7 to 7.45 to first be with my kids rather than having them in my lap as I'm feeding them and my phone in the other and just scrolling through and responding to emails. Like that advantage time professionally is actually hurting me holistically. But then once I turn it on, then I'm on. And I'm on yeah. usually to, from 8 until, you know, call, you know, early evening. I head home. I try and spend that last hour 
uh, that they're up with them, feeding them, etc. Um, and then when they go down, I try and get in some type of physical activity as often as I can, either mountain biking or playing basketball or working out. Spend time with my wife, try and see you know a friend or two, and, and I usually end up doing a fair amount of work. That's a nice routine. Yeah. What are some? Of you, I mean, there's a lot of nice biking trails out here. What are some yeah. of your favorites? So I do a trail called Railroad Grade a lot, which is basically okay. riding up Mount Tam um, over okay. in Marin. That's a serious one. Oh yeah, it's an endurance <laughs> challenge. <laughs> But the endorphin release that you get when you come down that trail and you come out into what's called Blydell Canyon, which is beautiful redwoods all around you, mm-hmm. is incredible. I mean, yeah. it's what drew me to the Bay Area. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Cool. So the next part of our interview is it's the lightning round. And this is where Arthur Rubin and I will ask you several questions, but we're really looking for actionable steps, actionable advice, tactics that you've used to start Mission you to build Pencils of Promise, and just in general, like be successful in life. So Arthur, with that said, take it away. Yeah. So we're going to switch it up a little bit this time. And if you could send out a tweet to everyone in the world and they, they will receive it and read it, what would it be? Oh, man. I, I would say probably one of my favorite mantras, which is make the little decisions with your head and the big ones with your heart. Oh, like Love it. that. Like it. So growing up in Atlanta, a lot of people told me that ball is life. And we know that you're a baller. So what are some things that you learn from basketball and sports in general that you feel are applicable, not just to entrepreneurs or educators, but also to your students? So there's so much that I learned from sports, especially, you know, eventually playing D1 basketball for two years before blowing out my ankle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a like a tolerance for pain and work ethic that I think mm-hmm. a lot of people don't. Yeah. Because I, I had a coach push me to a place that I didn't think I could go to. And I've yeah. seen that happen in my life. Yeah. And so I usually tend to believe that people have more than they believe in themselves. Yeah. Like I know you can go that extra place that you don't know you can go to yet. Yeah. And I experienced that through sports. The second one is that anyone who thinks that teams win by just having great individuals and not the collective ability of the team as a whole to have one another's back, to make each other better, to support each other, to be honest with one another is missing out. You learn that through- That's the strength strength in numbers. Yep, yep. And so I learned that through sports as well. And then the third thing that I think is really important, even for kids in particular, is sports teach you how to fail publicly. Yeah. You know, people like this idea that today kids get eighth place ribbons is ridiculous Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Like participation trophies are ridiculous (laughs) to me. You know, you, you compete to win. Yeah. And you shouldn't be satisfied unless you get to that place where you win. You know, you can be- happy with your effort, but you should still want more until you get to that place yeah. where you're achieving the goal that you set out to, which is yeah. almost never third place yeah. right, or second place. You want to yeah. go in first place. So you know, I think what happens in sports is you fail publicly You know, yeah. as a, a point guard in basketball. If I do a crossover and somebody rips that crossover and steals the ball from me and goes yeah. down and hits, I'm embarrassed. Yeah, But I have to take that internalize it and come down the next play. You don't want a participation trophy for that? (laughs) (laughs) But but I have to come down the next play and execute. Yeah. And people who haven't had significant experience in particular with team sports, especially at at high levels and when you're young, you don't experience failure publicly and therefore you walk through your whole life fearing failure. Yeah. But I think sports for me taught me like failure is okay. If anything, failure is where the opportunities for growth are. Yeah. And if I'm not pushing things to the place where I'm oftentimes failing and stumbling and learning from it, then I'm not growing at the pace yeah. that, that's best. And I love those three points, especially, you know, that last one and the first one, you know, you can't build muscle without resistance. But that last one about being the best at what you do does not mean that you can't work well as a team, yeah. you know, because you talked about, you know, the success of Mission you doing well doesn't mean that everybody else loses, yeah. right? 
if you solve this problem, it's an interconnected solution to a complex problem. So yes. I love um, the way you think. So yeah. yeah. So yeah, great point about getting like facing rejections, facing failure. The next question I want to ask you is about risk. So let's take it back to when you did have that job at Bain. And at that point, you realized that you wanted to build this like school in the middle of a recession and you'd still pursued it and uh, you like quit your job to do it. Can you take us back to the moment when you actually decided that, hey, you wanted to take the risk and what were your drivers for that? It was purpose more than anything else. You know, I asked the question, if I have this one life to live, Mm -hmm. uh, what's the life that that I want to create? And I knew, I mean, even going to Bain, I I knew that one day I wanted to start an organization that was going to build schools around the world. I just thought I was going to have to wait a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized, and especially when you're young, is the right time to take risks. You know, you don't yeah. have the responsibilities that you'll have when you're older. And it was, you know, in some ways a leap of faith, but I almost felt like it was more risky to not pursue the person that I wanted to be. Yeah. You know, that inner voice that was telling me, go do this, go do this. It was a greater risk to stay at Bain than to leave in my mind. Yeah. And to those listening to the podcast, if you're uh, stuck at a job that you don't like and you feel like there's a greater purpose, calling you just to follow in Adam's footsteps and just go and do it. And I love that. Like before he did it too, he learned a lot. He took what yeah. he learned. At I did brain and took it to the well. He's still showing love. So just because you quit on something doesn't mean you're abandoning them. You could still you totally. know, lift all boats oh, like yeah. we talked about before. So very cool. Are there any last words that you want to share with the people, you know, just to close them out that would be inspiring for them, for them to just think about? Yeah. I mean, you know, the final chapter in my book uses a mantra that's not mine. Most of them are just phrases I'd come up with over the years. But the final chapter is a a phrase from Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. She's the first female president on the African continent, just incredible woman. And it's a phrase that has helped me out so much over the years. And I think for the listeners of your podcast, they're the people that embrace this idea. She said, if your dreams don't scare you, then they're not big enough. Oh, I like it. And, you know, those are the type of students that we want to bring on at Mission U. And, you know, it's M-I-S-S-I-O-N, just you, not mm-hmm. Y-O-U, just. And so, you know, it's been an honor to spend time with you guys. Yeah. I love what you're building. You know, as someone who's listened to your podcast and understands the value that you bring to others, I think it's incredible. And, you know, hopefully some of the people out there will become students at Mission U and yeah. we can help them thrive in their paths ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm about to tweet that out. You know, if your missions don't, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. It's a perfect closeout yeah. uh, for Halloween and everything. So. Yeah. And what, <laughs> the last question, I guess, is for someone who wants to get in touch with you, yeah. what's the best way? Yeah. So I was giving out my email. So it's just adam at the letter I promise.org. And that's an email where you can reach me. You know, I don't check it all day, every day. As you've probably heard, I, I try and focus on the things right in front of me, but I should see it. Just Adam at ipromise.org. Yeah. And then on Twitter, I'm at Adam Braun. And then on Instagram at it's Adam Braun, ITS Adam Braun. And then, you know, hopefully uh, if you apply to an upcoming cohort of Mission U, then I'll get the chance to work with you personally. Yeah. And I actually want to make an offer to the people listening. I know that applying to a coding bootcamp or applying to a um, school is a nerve-breaking experience. So if you just email me at timor at breakingdisturbs.com, I'll create a separate group where other people who are also trying to apply to Mission U, where you can collaborate, you can ask yourself questions, and you can work on these group projects that you mentioned. So if you feel like you're alone, you're no longer alone, just email me and we'll put you in touch with other people. Yeah, that's great because we have office hours all the time. So if we want to help people get coached up and things like that, we love to support what Adam's doing with Mission U with, with Mike and everyone else. And so thanks for joining us on a Friday and let's break in yeah let's Let's break break in in. thanks Adam thanks for checking us out we appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better 
If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought in the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.